Niece to the Pharaoh. I am your host, Darling Nisi. So today we are going to talk about a pretty serious topic. Um, as you saw that the name of this podcast is called Dear White People. It's actually part of our Planting Flags in the Funk series when we're talking about prints and race. Before, we had interviews with aunties who were day one fans and talked about their experience seeing Prince come up and evolve through his career. In our last episode in the series, I had Erica Thompson on and we talked specifically about Prince's experience and how he navigated his career as a black man. But today we want to talk a little bit about racism, especially racism in the fandom and what it's like to be a black fan in this fandom. First, what is the definition of racism? Um, it's a belief that race is a primary determinant of human traits and capacities and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race. Don't really like that definition. Usually when people think of racism, they think of like old school black people getting hosed down by um, fire hoses, um, being attacked by dogs, KKK burning um, crosses in the front yard. But today it's not necessarily that specific, though sometimes it is. It's more insidious. Um, it's more systemic. And when we're talking about racism in the conversation today, it's more of a system of advantage based on race supported by institutions, policies, and practices that benefit dominant groups and disadvantage subdominant groups. It's a social expression of power and privilege. So what we want to talk about today is that look at systemic racism, what it really looks like, and how Prince was a huge champion in the fight against it throughout his career. Like everybody knows this Prince is black at this point. It's not the point, And we know how it informs his work. We spent two hours talking about that in our last episode. But in this one, I want to talk about really zoom out and talk about why he had to do that. So I have a diverse and blackdom panel today. <laughs> so first I want to introduce you guys, if you could say your name and also your ethnic background, that would be really helpful for today's discussion. So let's start with Fasayo. Hi, uh, my name's Fasayo. Um, my background, I am Nigerian or Nigerian-American. Uh, my father and mother um, immigrated here in the early 90s and raised me and my siblings here. Okay. And Crystal? Well, as far as I know, I am just Black American. Um, my Both my mother and father were uh, born here, and I was raised here. So, yep. Chloe? Um, I am born in London, England. My parents migrated to London from Jamaica. So I'm Jamaican. And Kanisa, regular American by way of Louisiana, by way. I did a, a one of those African ancestry things, and I am apparently Nigerian way back when. <laughs> and, Cousins. Um, yay! <laughs> but otherwise, I, I'm, I'm, I claim America. So um, let's get started. You're listening to Winchester University's only college radio station. Dear white people, the minimum requirement of black friends needed to not seem racist has just been raised to two. Sorry, but your weed man, Tyrone, does not count. Dear white people, please stop touching my hair. Does this look like a petting zoo to you? Mistress in, dating a black person to piss off your parents is a form of racism. The show is racist. Black people can't be racist. Racism describes a system of disadvantage based on race. How did we get here? 
Is this the America we've always been in, or is this a new America? Justin Simeon is exploring that conversation. Action. One that shines light on black identity through the lens of a Netflix series he created called Dear White People. The series is set on a predominantly white Ivy League college campus. How did we get here? Who hurt you? Well, 200 years. Slavery, got it right. Sorry I asked. Winchester is a stand-in for America. The show unpacks big and sometimes provocative themes, like racial bias in law enforcement. I'm going to need to see your ID. Why you need to see my ID? Son, I said ID. I'm not your son. Sexual orientation. Sexuality is a spectrum. White privilege and interracial relationships. Don't fall in love with your oppressor. The title is a misnomer. It's called Dear White People. But it's really about being black, and it's really about the fact that blackness sometimes feels like a constant response to white people, like you're always having to explain yourself. So the first question I want to get into before we move into Prince's specific thing, I think it's really important to talk about different perspectives, as I mentioned earlier. When we say things like um, uh, Prince wasn't really black or why is race matter and all these different topics, it hits a little different when you read that as a black person, especially when it's coming from a person who isn't black because it informed who he was so much. And it also kind of speaks to like this default perspective being one that has a white gaze. And so again, what we're talking about today is how we perceive Prince as black women, um, especially black women who didn't necessarily see the ambiguousness of the 80s. And so first, but what I want to talk about, or the first question I want to ask you guys, what is your perception and experience with racism based on your background and where you live? And we'll start with Fasaya. Um, well, I've always been aware from a young age that I would be treated differently. Um, in my case, because my family is black and foreign, um, I tended to think that it was because we were African and that's a partially because I didn't have like a concept of race as I feel like you don't always have when you're very, very young. Um, and even thinking back, it was hard to separate my ethnicity from my race. Now as an adult, I know that the way we were treated was because of both of those things, because we were black and because we weren't from here. Um, but I would say growing up, I witnessed the way, um, Americans, American born citizens, um, or the police would speak to my parents because of uh, their accents. Um, and I was always very aware of the disconnect between how I saw my family, you know, as powerful or intelligent, magnificent humans, um, and how other people saw them or would speak to them as though they were really small. Um, and as far as, you know, racism as a child, I remember we would have like neighbors call the police on us for something as uh, benign as like what my mom was cooking in our apartment. Um, or if we were being loud, we would get the police called on us. Um, and that kind of thing really uh, impacted my family. Um, I was reading a book by uh, Chimamanda Adichie. Um, and she was talking about how... Uh, her characters or when she came here from Nigeria, she's also a Nigerian author. She wasn't necessarily prepared to be black in America um, because they'd gone from being in the majority um, back home to, you know, coming here to America and having no network or social power in this country. Um, so it shaped the way that I was raised. Um, they made the decision to never speak to me in Yoruba, which is, you know, our language or ethnic or ethnicity, um, because they were afraid of what an accent would do to me and my siblings living here. Mind you, I still had an accent when I was young, but I've unlearned it since then. 
Um, and that was all as a child, you know, before I was ever called the N word or anything, I started going to school. Um, but I would say now my experience with racism occurs mostly in the professional setting. That's where I spend most of my day. Um, and it normally manifests itself in, you know, microaggressions, sometimes overtly aggressive comments, sometimes isolation, that kind of thing. I'm not sure how deep you want me to go, but, <laughs> but yeah, that's what I would say. Hmm. It's really interesting because um, I was going to ask because I know some of my Nigerian fans, they, they switch their, the way they talk depending on who they're around and they, they'll have their accent when they're talking to other people, but then it goes away mm -hmm. when they're talking to people who aren't also Nigerian. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's not even um, conscious. And for me, it's almost silly because like, I don't have the language. So, and I mean, in Nigeria, they have a pigeon, a pigeon English. I, I can understand that, but I don't speak it well, but you'll notice, or I'll notice that my like inflection changes or my tone changes or the way that I structure my sentence will change if I'm around Nigerians or my family. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later because uh, okay. the code switching thing definitely happens among black Americans too. But um, yeah, okay. let's, let's talk to uh, Chloe next. All right. So my perspective and my experience and racism based on my background and where I live, my parents are Jamaican and fortunate enough, a um, couple of years before they arrived to England, we had the Windrush generation, which was like my grandma generation and I'm a lot older, where they were basically taken from the Caribbean islands or from the West Indies and taken to Britain around the 50s to rebuild England after the world wars. So there was communities around set up in around South London and North London and West London. And I was all over London, really. But um, I was born and raised in West London, where Madonna was actually West Indians. Not many Jamaicans were around there, but more St. Lucians, Dominicans, Trinidad and Tobago, around the Notting Hill area where Notting Hill Carnival congregates from, where we celebrate annually each year our freedom against um, racism around in West London. And um, obviously throughout history, if you guys know a little bit about Jamaica, Jamaica was seen as a rebel island, whereas it was notorious during slavery where slaves were broken free and able to kill their masters and take over and rebel. So already throughout history, we already had this kind of um, label where we're quite aggressive especially how we speak and also how our mannerism is. We even though we're quite, well, Jamaicans are quite notorious in its own way, but we're not always like that. But there's this perception about Jamaicans out there already. And um, growing up, I never really had an issue about my race. It was, um, like Fasayo had mentioned, it's more when I got older, I started to notice and realize how difficult it was to basically break into the job market and able to form a career for myself. And um, I noticed, noticed the racism mostly happened around um, the black males in my community, how difficult it was for them to get jobs, but it was easy for the girls to get jobs. And um, about two years ago, I graduated from uni and it's been very difficult for me to able to get myself into a job, but I've been able to I've been able to secure a job. And I've noticed in the workspace the lack of diversity. It's like myself and another black girl, no black men, are used as tokens in the black um in inside the work community or in the workspace. And I notice when I look through the window and where I'm working, I'm like majority is a business area. So I'm, no, I'm noticing the people are walking around, don't look look doesn't look nothing like me. Majority of people I work with, obviously, are working in Europe, 
And obviously, there's other people coming from other European countries that come in, but they're offered jobs all immediately because they have a second language compared to people who look like me, who have the skills and the talent, but are not offered the job because of the colour of their skin. So um, I've noticed that there's a lot more institutional racism going on where I am at the moment than there is like blatant in your face, like they'll tell you straight off they don't like it because of your colour of your skin. So that's what I'm dealing with at the moment, what I've noticed at the moment. Hmm. Okay. Crystal? Um, so I grew up in a predominantly Black neighborhood, went to both predominantly Black elementary and high schools. And so when I think think about when I was younger, racism to me was someone calling you the N-word, someone specifically saying they don't like you because of the color of your skin or saying something, saying that you're one thing because of the color of your skin. And I didn't directly experience that just because everyone around me was black and the spaces that we occupied outside of school, everyone was black. And so um, I didn't, my perception of racism was that direct. It wasn't systemic. At least I didn't have an understanding uh, understanding of it um, at that time. And so it was, um, Something that I noticed as I got older, um, particularly when conversations about certain things uh, started to come up, like college, um, I learned uh, pretty early on that certain things weren't for me and not necessarily going to college, but what I would study when I went to college. So when I was younger, um, I loved science and I really wanted to be a pediatrician. And I had administrators, teachers and my own family tell me, you can't do that because of our circumstances, but not in, you know, not only because of our circumstances, but because that's a white people thing. And so I've heard, I, I heard things like that. Like I wasn't supposed to like certain things. I wasn't supposed to do certain things. I wasn't supposed to pursue certain things because it was a white person thing. Um, and so that's how I think I, I experienced racism. It wasn't direct. It was kind of, you know, uh, unconscious, I guess you would say. Um, and then, you know, currently I experienced I work somewhere where I am the only person of color in the office. And so I often, um, clients often will, one, ignore me completely. They will um, talk to me differently than they talk to the office manager, who is um, a white woman. Or And I've had people come up to my desk and, you know, while they're waiting for their appointment, stand and talk to me about Donald Trump. Trump and expect me to have a conversation with them. I try. I, I find myself um, just sitting there and nodding, not wanting to, to um, you know, have an argument come up or cause any type of trouble. I sit there and I take it and I have them talk at me about, um, you know, pretty racist and problematic issues. And I experience that daily with people, you know, they talk to me differently than they talk to the office manager as if they've known the office manager for years. And if I have done, just done something wrong to them, or I just have people ignore me completely when they walk through the door, when I say hello, or how is your day going or something like that. And so that's kind of how I experience it. And I'm pretty aware of my surroundings when I'm at work, how I act, what I say, how I present myself, um, because I am the only uh, person of color um, in the office. So it's, it's something I definitely see it 
every day, and but something I wasn't completely aware of growing up, um, just because everyone around me was black, and um, you know I wasn't supposed to experience racism as I was younger, or I didn't understand it when I was younger because, um, you know, black people, we're all going through the same thing, um, so. Yeah, I think that's kind of my background with my perception and experience with racism. So that's all like really interesting. So I was listening to everybody talk and I definitely identify with what everyone was saying. For me, it's like a combination of racism and classism uh, because I grew up in a lot of white dominated spaces because um, um, of our financial situation. So we'd be one of few black families, if not the only black family in the neighborhood, as well as at school. Um, so we started out in Michigan, um, a little less obvious there. And um, But when we moved down to Texas, it was a real struggle for uh, my parents to get my sisters into advanced classes, for example, because they thought um, you know, they weren't capable of, you know, being able to be in those classes. And so my dad would have to get in the suit and go meet with the principal and be very strong with him to say, why can't my daughters, you know, be in these advanced classes? Um, they've already covered what you have been doing in this grade level. And it's just a lot of like their teachers would say that they're immature or different things like that while they're getting like really high grades. Um, we also had situations in our neighborhood in Texas where the police were called on us when we first moved into our um home because it's I don't know why it's like you have a whole family of like two adults and three little girls walking to a house and the police are called on them why we weren't making noise we were just new but they thought we didn't live there because how could we afford to live in such a house or um, the KKK coming to my parents house in Mississippi my mom answered the door and they were trying to recruit people and <laughs> had an interesting uh exchange there, you know, when they didn't expect um, the person or they thought my mom was a maid. Um, it also came up a lot when I went to private school in Georgia. Uh, the parents would make comments like, so what academic scholarship are you on or what sport do you play? I'm like, I don't do any of that. My dad just works at this company. And, and it was never really from like the students for me. It was usually from their parents. Um, or teachers, teachers saying that I wasn't smart enough to get into an engineering school, which I eventually did at Georgia Tech. Or at Georgia Tech, hearing their students, it was, um, you, you're only here because of affirmative action, like I didn't have high grades just like they did. So for me, it was more systemic or institutional. Um, part of the culture of these organizations, assuming things about black people, or assuming that we weren't smart or or incapable of things, and then getting feedback um, about that. Thankfully for my job, it's always been very diverse because I'm a consultant who supports the federal government, and those spaces are pretty diverse. Usually there's a black person in higher management or something like that. And so I don't get it as much on the job. It generally is me personally, um, whether it's dealing with police that got pulled over Funnily enough, on the way home from the commandant of the Marines, my family is close with one of the guys that were um, high up in command back then. And I was driving home and I got pulled over by the police. Wasn't even speeding or anything, but driving through a nice neighborhood, the place where I lived. And he came to the window with a gun in my face. And I'm like, literally, because you guys know me, darling, Nisi Kanisa. I'm like barely 80 pounds or whatever because I'm real small. And then there's a police person who thinks I'm a threat to his life off of nothing. 
it was nuts. So this is kind of why I know we're like, you know, this is all sad and I'm like about to be upset. But I wanted to start with this to kind of talk about when we're talking about Prince and race and not seeing race where he was colorblind. There's so much stuff that black people, no matter where they live, kind of um, don't talk about as much because, first of all, we'd be upset all the time if we did. But really, it's it's all the stuff that exists every day. You hear Crystal say that happens to her every day. Um, you heard Chloe said she can't find a job or it's difficult for her to find a job because of that institutionalized bias against people who look like her. You heard um, Fisayo talk about how she had to unlearn her own culture because it would be a threat to the way she operated here in America. This is like daily life for us. And it's daily life for black people in America. It was daily life for Prince as well because he was also had to experience that. And I just want to kind of set, not to make everyone upset or feel guilty or anything, but to kind of let you guys know this is what we're operating with when we're talking about stuff like this and when we're reading comments about Prince and his lack of uh, blackness and things like that. But to move on to the next question, <laughs> I'm very curious because I know um, American black people have certain reputations to those who um, aren't from here. And I'm curious about what is the perception of American black people from especially um, Chloe and Fisayo? So because I, I've as we've been hearing, you know, certain things that have happened in the last couple of weeks, I've gotten some feedback from people who don't live in America, and they really don't understand why race is such a big deal here, or why it's talked about so much. So I, I'm just curious, if you're on the outside, um, what what is the perception of race in America, and specifically of black Americans? And we'll start with Chloe. Well... I can't speak on behalf of everyone. These are my own point of views. But um, growing up in secondary school, literally we thought you guys were like God. And um, I was like, everyone would just literally like bow down to you guys because of the mainstream media, majority of the music, the films, everything was about Hollywood, the American dream, but also to be black and cool. That was what the perception from my circle of friends were how we see you guys as um, both black Americans. And um, it was literally you guys were just literally like trendsetters and it was just cool. But also at the same time, as I get older and we see all these things since 2015, from the situation we're going on with the police and the amount of killings are going on, like the senseless killings amongst the police officers and black people, we're thinking, where is your community? We was getting confused and like before when we were younger, we saw you guys all together, partying, celebrating who you are and you're becoming this whole this whole like movement of wokeness. So I was like, oh, you know, it's, it's nice to see that because over here we're already aware of who we are and where we come from in, in, in the UK. The black community is quite aware. But over there, you guys kind of seem quite lost, but you guys kind of created this whole world where you was comfortable who you were despite what's going on around you. But um from 2015 onwards, we was like, what is going on here? It was quite confusing how all these, like you came, you you had so much power, but you came powerless. And it was like, what's what's going on here? Like, are you, are you guys really allowing this to happen? Because um, around that time in London, we've had something similar where the guy wasn't even fully black. He was mixed race. And he got killed by a police officer. From it by a gun. We don't have gun violence over here in London like that. We have stabbings. And it was quite, it created an uproar co- across the country. And it was only one guy. And we were thinking, if we can do this over here, how come 
the African Americans can't do that over there. Um, so, uh, to be honest with you, yeah, it was. Um, we still we still look up. We don't look up to you in a way, but we're like, okay, we'd love to be over there because you guys have the sense of live. Like you guys are live. Live is like another slang word that we use over here. Like you guys are cool. You're just living it, and you know. So. To answer your question, yeah, that was our perspective. Well, that's my perspective. I can't really say it for us because I can't speak for everyone. Everyone has their own point of view about African Americans. Um, black, yeah, African Americans, that's what we call you guys, African Americans, because sometimes we're just going to call you African stuck in America. That's what we used to joke about as well, literally. But um, hmm. yeah, that, yeah. African stuck in America. That's kind of cool, actually. Okay. Um, how about you, Fisayo? <sighs> Um, well, I can kind of speak to what Chloe's saying a little bit. Um, trying to figure out how, like, the best way to say. It. I think uh, what a lot of Black people here in America don't realize is just how much influence they have, and it's because we're in America. You know what I mean? I think I think a lot of times Americans don't realize just how people outside of America look up to them um, in terms of it. I mean, it 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 inspires culture changes. It inspires how people dress. Um, and that's whether you're white or black. Um, I want to say that in terms of my perception of black Americans, like first and foremost, the black diaspora period, like saved our lives when we were first starting out here. Um, like I said, when we started here, we had no network. Um, so we made connections with other black families, often other black immigrants, um, and we stayed with them or they stayed with us, um, and so on and so forth. So period, like black people are a huge part of my family's, you know, survival here. I think like the first auntie that I can like identify as an auntie was actually Jamaican. Um, and as an adult, my relationships with black women have saved my life as well, particularly in the workplace or any space where I just like had no mentorship. It was usually a black woman if there was one. Um, in terms of how I view American people, I'm in the third space. I think I've said this before, either in like private conversation. I can't remember if I said it on here before. I don't feel or identify as like 100% American. And I know that ethnically, I'm not what we would like typically refer to as African-American here. Um, but I also don't feel like I'm 100% Nigerian. Part of that is not having the language. So I'm like, I'm just black. Um, but I feel a deep kinship with American black people. This is the only country I really know. Um, and I will say that sometimes I feel a little bit sad that black people here don't quite know just how African they are, if that makes sense. Um, and it's also hard to explain sometimes. Um, there are some things that I think in my mind are like universally black. Like there's a certain kind of generosity and like a deep, um, I don't know, reverence for life that black people have. Um, there's a resilience that black people have and, you know, our like propensity to always celebrate in any occasion. I feel like those things are universally black, or at least I, I encounter that among Nigerians. I don't want to speak for like all of Africa, but <laughs> yeah. That's really cool because, like, I noticed that that's one reason why I wanted to have our diverse panel today to kind of identify those type of things. But also reading this past week on Black Twitter, <laughs> um, the dissertations that have been going on and the shared experiences that we all have um, that are just so specific to not just 
American black situations, but black situations across the diaspora, as you said. And I'll link to that in the show notes if you guys want to observe, but not necessarily participate. (laughs) But um, yeah, and I I think that's interesting because I'm I'm curious to how much like the Black Lives Matter um, media got out outside of America. Because I saw it all up and down my timeline on Twitter and in Facebook and in another situation, again, of noticing uh, or that hit. Because I know we had some demonstrations in Atlanta. Uh, they had gotten a permit even and shut down a bridge and they all laid down on the bridge. And I remember seeing some of my neighbors saying, oh, I'd mow them over in my or I wish I had a, a, a truck so I can roll over them. My own neighbors. Right. But it's, it's funny. You'll hear them. You'll hear them say that. But then they'll say stuff like, oh, but not you, Kanisa, because you're different. And I hate that. And mm-hmm. we can talk about that a little bit in a second as well. But I was curious to hear um, what that perception was. And to before we get into the Prince specific thing, I have one more question. Um, what have you noticed about the perception of other Black American figures in their rise to mainstream popularity? Because one thing I noticed, especially reading different biographies of famous musicians who are Black, they all tend to follow the same trajectory of how they are able to be popular, whether it's you, you start out usually in the church. Again, we talked about this in our last Planting Flags in the Funk episode. But you start off in church. Um, you do the local gigs, um, you get on the black radio and you're very popular. And then you do some sort of crossover event where you either get like a publicist to help you cross over or you do the Coca Cabana, like the Temptations, or you do a standards cover of like uh, popular music or jazz. And then you break across all of the mainstream quote unquote, essentially white radio. And then you become this big thing. And then after that, um, you tend to you have like a couple two three years of prominence and then you kind of fall back to what you were doing before and then suddenly you're not as popular anymore but you're known as a legend mostly based on the stuff that you were known for when you were popular and I notice that that has been the same story for so many different black artists especially old school ones or even Prince and um, I'm wondering how that how how you guys see that or if you've noticed that as well in other artists. Um, I've definitely noticed that. Um, I think like the highest praise you can give to a black artist is that they crossed over or had the crossover appeal. Mm. And the ones that have crossover appeal are the ones who are most widely celebrated for the most part, I think. Um, and just like you said, there's usually like a rise to fame where usually like a white man is involved. Um, it's usually tied to a white person. There's like an initial pop era. There might be like R&B elements or like typically black elements in the music, but it's pop. Um, and then later on, there might be a switch and that's followed by like a decrease in popularity. Like I would I would bring up Whitney Houston. That's pretty much it. Like she started out pop and R&B, but then she was later geared more to R&B. Mariah Carey is another one like... She's most known for her pop ballads, I think. Um, she's always incorporated an R&B sound, but she's known for like the pop ones, like Hero or A Vision of Love. Um, I think that's still like more appreciated than when she switched to R&B. Like if you're not a Mariah Carey fan. Um, yeah, I don't know. I would just like to add just a little, I guess a few examples or, you know, with when you see a lot of popular artists today, um, you know that artists are about to hit 
you know, mainstream popularity when you see them play like festivals. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed, there's a, like a lot of different ones, you know, the Coachella, the Rolling Loud and all of those festivals. And you often look at the crowd and it's predominantly white people. Um, and then after that, they kind of, their, their careers kind of fire off. Um, so I've, I, I noticed that it's, it's kind of still the same um, today with popular black American figures that popularity is still gaining that um, white crowd and they'll paint it as diverse, but it's not really that. <laughs> it's, it's once you're able to cross over, then you are, you've essentially made it or you've become successful to some extent. For example, I've been, I'm going back like, I'm going back like, I'm talking about nothing, like Motown, James Brown. Now, recently I've been listening to a lot of James Brown all of a sudden, and I actually finally watched the biopic Chronicles of his film that came out in 2014 with Chadwick Boseman in it. And I didn't realize that when he started off, right, some, well, obviously they're always stealing our material and always making it their own and rise to the top, and then we have to start all over again back to the drawing board. But I didn't realize there was a band that took one of his songs and tried to whiten it. And then literally the same singing the same song, but the white audience adapted more to the white band singing James's songs compared to James singing his own songs in his own way until he had his own publicist, because there's always going to be white. Crystal's mentioning that someone behind the door is going to be white to pull the strings on PR. It's always going to be the person going to open the door because, like I said, institutional racism is real. They're not going to give us the jobs. They're going to give them the jobs because, like you said, people, clients are not interested in seeing black faces to run a business. They think we're going to run it to the ground because we don't have any talent. We don't have the skills for it. So, sorry, I'm a bit of a rant there, but I'll definitely be honest with you. But I didn't realize that when it comes to, because I've noticed this as well, I'm looking at Cardi B right now, and I noticed that they flew her down to Apple John, down in Europe, to perform a song or some concerts, and then she was over down at Formula One. Now, they didn't advertise it, but these people have money to fight artists around. You guys are talking about Coachella. Think about the fashion brands. Think about the fashion houses. Like I said, they used the token black girl out there to be a mannequin to represent us, but she looks nothing like me too tough in the mirror when you look at us in the mirror. When it comes to ordering models from Fashion Week or for other fashion fashion brands, they don't look nothing like us. As much melanin as they have, they don't represent us to speak like the average modern black woman that we have today. So when it comes to rise of fame, they're looking for someone who can be a puppet master. Now Recently, Fenty Beauty has announced Amanda Stanberg is going to be the new face of Fenty. Amanda, yes, she may be black, but she's mixed race. Why is it every time the black face that they use for these fashion brands have to have some sense of white in them, some form of mix, some form of she's exotic. So, yes, she's there for both sides. She represents those who are not white, but are white and those who are black, but not black. You understand where I'm coming from, right? So anyways, back to the music side of things. Motown and James Brown, I was looking at how they had to do certain things, how they had to basically bribe radio radio hosts and radio stations to play their music through music. And they turned around and said to them that they couldn't play their music because pop stands for popular music. When you look at it today, they deem them as legends, but they're a part of popular culture. But at the time, they had to work hard to be basically be recognized that their music is popular music. It is pop music, but yet they deem them as rhythm and blues because rhythm and blues is obviously born in the black community so when it comes to these artists nowadays doing the crossover and able to appeal can, uh, across 
you know, the world, let's call it that, because music is everywhere. Anyone can access it from the click of a button on a smartphone and a laptop nowadays compared to how it used to be. I applaud them. But remember, people had to literally climb obstacles to get through to it, and including Prince as well, because this podcast is about Prince's blackness, but, you know, it's their white people. So then we have to educate those who don't know, because sometimes some people tend to act dumb, hence the reason why we're doing this podcast in the first place, because we have to educate those who don't know. But, you know, I'm just saying, that's my two pens into where I... Yeah. Uh, I don't know. No, no, yeah. it's real because I remember we were at Celebration, Bob Cavallo specifically said it was really hard to get Purple Rain made because WB didn't finance it because they didn't think it would be good or that it would be successful because a black artist was leading it. And he had to go to the head of WB and like basically beg to get even 800 screens to distribute it because WB didn't finance it. It was Bob Cavallo and Prince's advances. So... When he went to the head of WB, he was like, I need 800 screens. And he was told stuff like, oh, we don't think it could fill that many. Or, oh, we're worried about riots in the South over this movie and like crazy stuff like that. And he himself said it was racism that made this movie so difficult to get made because it, they weren't supportive of it. And um, and the the kind of bias toward whiteness is really interesting, too, because I um, – I was trying to find like a, a a quiz or something to kind of have with this one like we did for the fanaticism episode to kind of um, have people kind of take it and see how they line up. And I took a, an implicit bias race test and I got the result that I actually um, had a bias toward whiteness, which I thought was really interesting. But when I thought about it deeper, it makes sense because – and it also kind of I kind of thought about why I am so possessive of Prince's blackness, because even though um, I shouldn't be because, you know, it's it's not for me to feel that possessive. I am thinking about how I spent most of my life around white people and I've always adjusted myself to not offend or make them uncomfortable because I know that some of the attention that I will get if I am fully myself will be harmful or um, like if you walk into a store, you're like extra obvious with your emotion, not your your emotions to say, I'm not stealing anything. I'm just looking. Or um, I was in a I went to um, a restaurant in South Georgia with my family and we were the only black family in there. And it makes you feel like a little uncomfortable. Cause it's just like jokingly call out. I'm not black. I just have a tan or something like that. And and it's I feel uncomfortable um, talking about Prince's race sometimes because there's always the people who will yell out, why does it matter? And what I hear when people say that is that black people don't matter because I'm seeing, you know, them say that along a headline about someone who's recently getting harassed just for being black. Because um, I saw this last week or the last two weeks when the Sign of the Times drama was going down. A lot of people were like, oh, why do you always have to talk about race? Why does that always come up? Or I saw an actual comment on Facebook that said um, there are these so-called podcasters and universities talking about um, – Prince's blackness and they're not really fans or something like that. And I was like, Oh my gosh, because it, it matters. And, um, and I, I almost get, cause sometimes I, I always kind of want to walk the line between being like too vocal about it and not. And I, I understand kind of how Prince w wasn't necessarily out that out there with it because he knew if he was super vocal, he'd lose a lot of support. Like you can't be out there talking about blackness every two seconds. Um, because, like, people will feel offended or they'll be like, oh, it'll call out a racism that they're not aware that they don't have. And um, 
it's just a very uncomfortable space to sit in. And But it makes me also mad that why do I have to center whiteness every day of my life in order to feel safe? And it almost feels like I'm denying myself and being my authentic self because I'm adjusting myself so much to make other people comfortable when they don't do the same for me. And it's it's just annoying how in our society in America or in spaces where we're not the majority or whatever, um, the default is always whiteness. Or like Crystal was saying earlier, even among our own community, when someone says, if you like something that's not stereotypical black, they'll say that's a white thing, or why do you talk white, or all this other white stuff. And it's just very frustrating to hear that like every day. <sighs> and that was my right. Okay. So, but the next question, unless someone wants to comment on that. Better not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I didn't but, want, oh, go ahead. No, I, I mean, I'm like right with you. I've gotten, I mean, it's like a weird thing because you have to like first at least if you're in my shoes, you have to first learn what the black things are. And then you have to like somehow, I don't know, adjust yourself accordingly so that you're seen as black. Or it could just be something like you're praised for, I don't know, I guess it just speaks to a limited view of what blackness is. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. Because how can you come to me? People have done this to me, come to me and then like praise me for my vocabulary or congratulating me because I read as if those are things that are not black things. I like just the other day, someone at my office like praised me for using hydrate in a sentence. And I had to like, (laughs) I mean, she was being genuine, but I had to like, I had to tell her like, I'm an educated person. (laughs) Like I have a whole degree that's you guys hired me. That's why I'm here. Mm-hmm. But it was just so, it was insulting. And it, it, that's one example, but it happens. It's happened like all throughout my life. Um, but anyway, let's move on. I don't want to get, you know, <laughs> no, no, let's move yes, on. Please. Yeah. Okay. So to move on into Prince <laughs> and the thing that I feel like might get a little, okay. So the question is what emotion comes up when you see people saying Prince wasn't black? or it wasn't really black, or any kind of conversation that minimizes his blackness. Who wants to go first? Why don't you go first? Because you know what? (laughs) Okay, so (laughs) this is something that really heats us up for a, a lot of different reasons. Some of what we just said, because what does that even mean? How can you apply a race to behavior? There are some things that are cultural that, like we said earlier, do permeate throughout our different things. But there are also, um, and I feel this too, as someone who has also been told that I'm not really black. But the thing I admire about Prince Mel is he's someone who's obviously black, but he sometimes lived outside of that stereotype, which is what I relate to. And it gives you permission to just be you. Um, there was a, a presentation at the Spellman Bat Dance Symposium, and someone did a presentation on him being a free black man. And um, I think that is amazing because it's like he expanded the definition of what that is to people in a way that people can see him and relate to him as a black person, but also understand that, hey, maybe we talk well, or maybe we listen to different types of music, or maybe we're not a monolith and um, we can still be black in like things that you may not associate with blackness and then a lot of even that stuff as I was just talking about the things that a stereotypically 
specifically aren't black aren't necessarily inherently white either. It's just dominated by people who are white because there are barriers for anyone else to be included in the conversation or those institutions, i.e. rock, i.e. Um, I don't know, some of the new age spirituality stuff. Because I... Um, because I'm kind of into that as well. And there's a website called Gaia.com, G-A-I-A. And I noticed like most of the people who wrote all these videos are all white people. But I know for a fact that there are black mystics or even that a lot of the spirituality is born from spaces from non-white people. But if you look around in all of the institutions or the um, the media around it, it's always like a white person who's talking about channeling or... Um, like the chakras or yoga and all this other stuff. And I think that's very interesting. But I probably, um, oh, and the other part of it is there's so much that he did that was just so inherently black culture and specifically sometimes American black culture that if you don't know what you're looking for, you're not going to notice it. Because I um, posted the do-rag on Twitter the other day and people kept tweeting me like the 1991 version. I was like, no, I picked I, I picked the specific one with the tails for a reason because that has a, a, a specific kind of um, meaning to it. Because that's like your cousin Tyrone. He's sitting on the front porch of the house, and he's got the white T-shirt that's long and the black long shorts and the slip-on flip-flops with the white socks, and he's wearing the same type of do-rag on his head. And Prince wore them sometimes at after shows. He wore it on the cover of the Expectation album. You knew about that because that's something that we all share. So it's like stuff like that that may not be obvious if you're not in the culture, but he did it all the time. So when people say things like he wasn't really black, it's like, how do you know? What would what is your definition of blackness really? I guess I can go. Um, so when I hear when when people say that, I, I just have several questions that come up. Like, why was that something people wanted to believe? Um, how does his blackness change their admiration for him? Um, I often feel like people's true opinions come to light when they say stuff like that and their relationship with race um, is in the forefront. And it's often evident that it makes it easier to call themselves Prince fans if he's not attributed as a black artist. Um, and I also wonder what the one's perception of a Black artist is? Um, can Prince not be uh, successful and a Black artist as well? Or can he not appeal to white audiences without erasing um, his culture and his beliefs? And um, so, you know, a lot comes up. It feels like erasure feels like they want to erase who he was, his values, his culture, where he came from, how he was able to, to achieve success because his race and, you know, him being Black goes into that. You can't talk about Prince and not talk about the fact that he was a Black man. So um, just a lot of questions come up. I, you know, you, I try not to make assumptions, but it's hard not to when people say things like that, because it's obvious that there's a bias that's peeping through. Um, and a lot of times people don't want to uh, analyze why. And it's just easier for them to say that because it, it makes, them more comfortable. And it's also easier for them to say it when the narrative has been uh, um, controlled by non-Black people. You know, authority of Prince for so many years has been by non-White people. And so they're not able to, or they, they choose not to um, explore um, 
his work any deeper than uh, what's on on the surface, because of course they don't have that experience um, and they don't have that understanding, but they also don't have the willingness to learn about it either. So it's it's very interesting. Um, it's not easy to hear, and just a lot of uh, a lot of points come up, a lot of questions come up when I hear that. Okay. I need someone, eventually someone's going to have to chip in and cut me off. But um, to answer your question, what comes to my mind when I first hear Prince was in black or Prince isn't black? Sometimes I've had a habit of talking about Prince in present tense, like he's still here. But to me, it's it's annoying. I am annoyed because as positive, quote unquote, as that phase sounds, what I hear is... I'm not responsible for making change. I don't believe you. Your experience doesn't matter. Or, you know, it's like Fasayo has said, and what Kinesia said before, it's like you're erasing the identity of the person, of who they are, or it's come across like they know more about our experience than what we know, and it's like, mm. I'm not a racist, or I don't want to talk about racism in our culture, or I don't want to talk about race, it makes me feel uncomfortable. And, you know, it's just like, okay, Stop. <laughs> Just stop for a second because it's offensive to us. It's offensive to Prince. As much as you quote unquote say you love Prince, if he was still here today, he would have checked you on that immediately, especially on my own personal encounters of Prince, how he spoke about his race and how he spoke about his culture. I wish people would knew how cultured he was and how aware he was. Because what I've noticed, though, I had a conversation with my mom because she, she and Prince are closer in age anyways. She's not much of a big fan like me, but she was aware of his music but then I from my trip to Minneapolis I'm coming back and talking to my mom about it I said to her I kind of understand why Prince was the way he was Minneapolis was predominantly white the black community was clearly segregated up in north side where it was where I was staying or where we were staying Kenisa told me some history about the area I was shook I was like oh I'm very grateful to be even walking on these streets because had it been 50, 40 years ago or 60 years ago, I wouldn't be able to walk them streets too clearly or too proudly for the, because of the color of my skin. And I understand why Prince created this bubble around him where he's like, I understand outside people see me as this black man or this black artist, but I am more than that. I don't want to be basically labeled and put in a box because of my the color of my skin or my race. I want to be me. This is me. This is who I am. And I just want to go back to, because, you know, recently the estate has been releasing some quotes of, from the past from Prince of songs and actual appearances. And it was a quote that came out online because of this whole controversy about the Sunday Times documentary. There was a quote that came out from, not Paisley Park's account, from the Prince account. And it basically kind of made others feel validated because... Uh, everyone's arguing amongst themselves about, oh, I never saw race, I never saw this, and then there's a, a small handful of us, including us and other people, group people, arguing the case like Prince's blackness is important. And the quote was... I was brought up in a black and white world. And... Yes, black and white. Night and day, rich and poor, black and white. And I listened to all kinds of music when I was young. And... When I was younger, I always said that one day I was going to play all kinds of music and not be judged for the color of my skin, but 
the quality of my work. People underneath the comment section was saying some things and I was just like, you know what? I hope the person who decided to release that quote realized they've they've <laughs> they've drawn out the ugly side of the fandom. And that's the side that I've always noticed since the day I've started has always been there. And I was just like, it's it's pretty sad. So I was thinking about this the other day. If I'm being honest, a large part of the reason why I personally harp on Prince being black is because I know so many people love him. And to acknowledge his blackness and point out that part of his identity in my head would also help people to see me as human who can and does make valuable contributions to humanity. I am a person who's worthy of opportunities and fundamentally of life. And it makes me feel nuts that I hold him up as a black figure and project all this responsibility on him to be part of the vanguard to humanize black people. But it's like also real. And, and sorry. And that's why it hurts so much when people say that. Because they overlook that part of him. And they continue to objectify him in other ways. Like, I struggled a lot because, you know, everybody knows this prince is very sexy and stuff. But, and then in my back of my head, I also know the history of how black men are objectified and fetishized as sex machines. And Prince himself even repeatedly said, for example, that sex was so much more than that. But he's largely reduced to just like this playboy bachelor type who make women swoon with a smirk. And it's just like really complex to see people make those comments and then know the history and the systematic stuff in your head because you live it every day and then be able to reconcile that when working with a fandom to help educate and then to help, like Chloe said, people throw that in their face like, you don't know, or you're not an expert in prints, or like, your, your, your experience is invalid because I, I can't relate to it, or it doesn't include me. So I'm going to minimize that and push it to the side and just have him be what I want him to be. And it's, it's just really complex. <sighs> and and I, I remember seeing um, there was another article, again, I think Lisa Coleman said he never wanted to lose his black audience. That was really important to his identity, even within the black community. There was tension about how light his skin was. Can we really call him one of us? It was a struggle for him all of his life. I saw that quote. And when I tell you, it was so annoyed because I've never heard of people in the black community not a... If they were there from the beginning, there was never any confusion whether or not he was black, one. B, it was never about him being light-skinned. We have people across the spectrum. I've got cousins who look white. You wouldn't even know looking at them that they are black. It was not about the light skin. When I interviewed the aunties for the episode for this podcast, they all said, since they were day one, they checked out from about 85 to 86 because... um not because of the color of his skin being light, but honestly, it was kind of the sound. He thought he sold out a little bit. He became too pop and uh, was talking to someone else. And they were saying, you know, for black radio stations, it was harder for them to find the R&B type of songs for their radio format in those years. So it was like the black people checking out was not about the color of his skin. Honestly, and I'm going to be really real. It was because of his proximity to white people and how he was surrounding himself and put forward the images of white people rather than black people as he had before. And they all came back around around 87 for Sign of the Times because now you've got Kat 
You've got Sheila, who we mostly considered black. You've got Levi, Miko, um, Bonnie, like the people who were at the front of the band, the visions that, or the, the, the image of the band was people of color, mostly black people for pretty much the rest of his career, honestly. So it's, 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 it's a complex and it's weird for me to talk about that in mixed company, but um, that is kind of where, that's why that quote made me so annoyed and that's why it's so important to kind of get the black scholars out here to talk about Prince because there's a whole other perspective that we're talking about here today, but also through his historical um, legacy that has been missed up until now because we haven't had the avenues. Now we have the internet and people can write blogs and put out papers. But when you're historically system systematically shut out of being able to contribute to the story, um, you don't hear that that extra context or those extra um, stories that go along with his legacy. Amen. <sighs> so, sorry. Uh, I didn't realize this would be such an emotional episode. So, it's okay. Yeah. So yeah. already soon. Um, and I, I mean, I, kind of, go ahead. No, I, I wanted to say that it's, I think the reason why it's so upsetting and why like there's an immediate reaction is because it's just really familiar. Like, I think people might think they're, I want to. I'll, I'll say. I think white people might be thinking they're unique in the way that they refer to Prince's blackness or like lack of black blackness, but it's really just a long-standing pattern that many black people have had to deal with. Like we said before, like people taking the things that you do that are not stereotypically black or within their limited definition of blackness and using that against you as a way to like strip you of your blackness. There's so many people who've been, you know, told they're not really black or told that these things are not really black. And I think when people are trying to say that Prince isn't black, I, I think, again, you might have to, you know, double check this with a white person, but I think that they're saying that it's because he was such a unique individual and that feels like they're saying that his excellence or his uniqueness can't also be considered black um, when many times Prince was just doing what black people do. And I think the other thing that makes it really sad is uh, I think for many black fans, I'm, I don't want to speak for everybody, but for me, part of what made Prince so special was the fact that he was a black man. Um, I saw his story is such a black story and it inspired me and resonated with me as a black person. And even, and I just thought it really said something that he had, uh, reached the level of, um, I guess, fame that he had, even when he passed away, it was like, look at all these people coming together and celebrating a black man. That's how I saw it. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it's mind boggling and it's, baffling that people are looking at Prince and celebrating him and then also actively ignoring his race. Like that to me is just like, it's the saddest realization. Um, and I don't think people realize just how hurtful that is. We can move on. Okay. I just wanted to add really quickly, um, off of what Fasayo was saying. Um, also if you could, you know, when people say Prince is in black, also, what is your definition of that? Um, because when you say he's not black, it often feels like you have this very stereotypical perception of what black is. Um, so I, I think it's important if people kind of explore that. I, I know they don't want to because then they'll see, you know, this mirror held up and it won't be a pretty picture. But 
you know, when you say he's not black or he wasn't that black, you know, what does that mean? What to you, you know, what is that? What is your perception of what black is? Just because he appealed to you, maybe a white person, he's not really black. Like, you know, what, what does that mean? What is your definition of black as well? So I just want to add that. Thank you. Yeah. <sighs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, so these next two, um, I kind of want to just combine them. It was what emotions come up for you when people say Prince was colorblind and also what emotions come up for you when people say Prince transcended race. So who wants to take that one? I'll go. Mine's is uh, rather quick. Um, so it, it's, it's infuri- infuriating to hear people say colorblind and also transcended race, because, again, I think white fans say this to make themselves feel comfortable. Um, they don't want the responsibility of considering white Prince had to market himself the way he did to be successful. They don't want to look past how his music impacted them. Um, They don't want to look at how, you know, his culture and how he was brought up um, impacted the way he had the the decisions he had to make, um, the choices that he made throughout his career. you know, if Prince was colorblind, then there is no accountability in how they view race and particularly black people and black arts. Um, back in the day and maybe still today, success meant that you gained a white audience. And the narrative was born then that he transcended race. Um, you know, he when I hear that, it sounds like they're saying he removed himself from what it meant to be black when people say he transcended race. Um and so he, they you know, he he made it when he obtained a white audience when when music was able to appeal to them. Um, you know, they felt like, oh, this is for me too. I'm included, and not just for them or black people. So um, it's very infuriating to hear because it it again, like we've brought up several times, it does feel like. Uh, they are erasing kind of the foundation of who Prince was. Um, so yeah, that's all I that's all I wanted to say. Um, I want to know what does that mean? That's the first thing that pops up in my head when I hear this. And I I could just say this now: Prince never transgendered race. Prince never tried. Prince was a black man. He was what he wanted you to see. And he was never going to go above and beyond but being black because that's who he is. And I'm like, I feel like, I don't know, they keep making these new phases, these new words every time to make themselves feel comfortable. But um, to me, I feel like the term is a myth and it's false and they need to stop saying it because it's more of an insult to Prince than it is a compliment. So... For those who are listening, take heed and proceed with caution when it comes to using that term. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't believe in colorblindness. I think that's fake news. That's not a thing. I, I like. Well, on one hand, I guess I kind of understand it, as he might have taken what you might call a colorblind approach when, like, putting together his bands. Like, maybe he's only focusing on talent. Um, but I don't necessarily think that's color blindness. I think that's more of a, uh, 
intention to be diverse and promote diversity on stage. Um, again, I'm not speaking for him. Um, and then when people say that Prince transcended race, it's again, familiar. And so it's irritating. I think the phrase transcend race, like you said, Crystal, kind of just absolves people or absolves us of, it absolves racism and white supremacy of the role that it has in the plight of Black people. Like it's some kind of inherent limitation or hurdle Blackness is that's given to us as at, at birth, and then we have to overcome. And that's something that's just part of, you know, us making it in this country. And that's not the case. Um, I was reading a couple of articles and there's an article in the Daily Beast that said it really well, that race isn't something to be transcended and rather white supremacy is something to overcome. And that's pretty much how I see it. I, I, like you would have to ask a white person again what they mean when they say that Prince or Whitney Houston or Michael Jackson or Stevie Wonder or Beyonce's transcended race. To me, that phrase could only mean that they overcame the systemic obstacles that are faced by every Black person trying to pursue their career in this country. That's all that phrase could mean to me. And again, it's um, it's it, it's a misdirect, if that's a word. I don't know if that's a word. But it just shifts the focus away from what, you know, racism and white supremacy, how that's holding people back. Does that make sense? Complete sense. But I was just going to say really quick, also, though, when it's mentioned a lot in, like, articles and tributes to Prince when, when they say transcended race, and it's never, I feel like it's never meant in, in the way Fasayo said they yeah. they overcame any obstacles or anything. It's always meant that he appealed to not only black people. You know Pretty what much. I mean? Yep. So it's it's it it would be interesting to hear from white people specifically what it means to them. And not Don't at me when you do it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they want to know. <laughs> Leave me out of that con- and I'm just kidding, but you know. Mm, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it'd be interesting to to hear specifically because there was a lot of things that came up with the sign all the times discussion. Um, and people, you know, and that's kind of what, you know, what the, why we're pretty much doing this because of all the conversations and the different points that came up. And um, it's, it's often that transcendent that he transcended race. So I never saw a... race. I never saw his blackness. Yeah, yeah. It's his music. I just like the music. Yeah, right. Yeah. And yeah, but I think that's just the cop out. Yeah. Something I was thinking about the other day, because I know we know Prince had to navigate his career a specific way in order to do what he did later. But can you imagine what would have happened if Under the Cherry Moon came out and that was the first time that we saw Prince cinematically? Because like his his personality in that movie is so different than Purple Rain, where he's just like in this intense, quiet guy. But Under the Cherry Moon is kind of more in line with, quote, stereotypical black dude with the way he dressed and his vernacular, the African-American vernacular, um, how he interacted with um, Tricky. It's like it's completely different. And do you guys think that if that was the first version of Prince that most people saw, that he would end up being as popular as he got? He wouldn't, but in the black community, we would shine him as borderline nearly a hero 
borderline maybe but he did teach us a few things like that scene what people find hilarious between him and tricky butterscotch and chocolate do you understand what he's talking about <laughs> if the police had to stop you on the street and will stop me and you on the, me and you and prince is walking on the street and we get stopped they're not gonna harass prince because he's lighter skin I'm just saying, I'm just keeping it real. It's just, it is what it is. Um, but Mary Sharon's character is a metaphor and he used that, but yeah, it goes over people's heads. And that kind of, maybe the reason why Under the Cherry Ring wasn't so popular because he was so black in the film that they couldn't relate to it compared to the kid. The kid showed a, a white and black, a white mother and a black father. So it was like, oh, you know, he's got white in him. You know, he's, he's either this or he's that, you know, so. Yeah. Because <laughs> I did talk to people in context about that too. And they were wondering because you know a bunch of black people set in the south of France, and the main chick is a white chick. Because I did talk to the aunties about that, they're like, "Yeah, we weren't a fan of that." But if you had actually gone to see it, like you said, it you could read it if you're looking through it, looking at it through a black lens, it could be read as a metaphor because um, you know you have a scene, the uh, Recasto scene, and there's so many jokes that are just inherently black that may not be picked up on other people by other people it's almost like um it can it's a movie that can be read on multiple levels for sure so that being said we'll fast forward even though we just talked about how blackness doesn't necessarily have a definition while there are some things that are cultural um we're not a monolith but also what are some of your favorite (laughs) prince blackest moments that you remember they can be songs or interviews articles anecdotes tweets uh and we'll start with Fisayo. um so i love when prince is performing for uh predominantly black audiences because he's like in his element um i would bring up the naacp image awards from 2005 um he's in his element there and it's um i don't know even though people might try and distance his music from black music I think that that's a pretty wonderful example of how well his music fits in uh, with the music of his influences, of his black influences, those who came before him. Um, and it's like it's like it's a continuation of that legacy. favorite black moments from Prince. Um, and I think, let's see. I also love that in his rehearsals, I'm keeping it kind of general, but I love that in his rehearsals, he would, um, randomly break into, um, covers of his influences as well. 
Um, the first example that came to mind when I read this question was um, a recording from the Purple Rush, where he breaks into a cover of Aretha Franklin's Baby, Baby, Baby. similar to what you would see on what you what we saw on piano and mic from 1983 where he covers mary don't you weep but it's just i don't know i just love i love that i think we all talk about how prince loved Joni mitchell and that's well established and good but i think he must have loved aretha franklin so much as well because he covered his music so frequently um and then i also um I loved hearing stories, especially after Prince passed away, of Black people whom he influenced or who he impacted. Um, so Gabrielle Union talks about in her book, um, We're Gonna Need More Wine, um, that Prince would have these parties in the mid-2000s. And I, I think Prince is notorious for, for his parties, but Gabrielle Union is one of the first people I remember, or only pe people who actually talked about them or framed them as Black people parties? Wow. What, what, I, what I enjoyed was how you talked about the Prince party. People knew that Prince threw some epic, epic parties. But what was really interesting was how you talked about the significance of those parties. Because what he created was a world where people got to meet. Why was that so significant for you? Well, as creatives, we generally are completely segregated. In, in LA, in New York, um, you know, there's black actor parties, there's right. black Hollywood parties, there's, you know, white Hollywood parties. And every so often, there's like a sprinkle that gets added to, right. you know, the, the white parties, and you're then the special magical Negro. Um, <laughs> you know the ones. So, but it's, yes. it's very rarely, like, super diverse. And if you're not in those rooms or at those parties, and you have a chance to really get to know people, we hire our friends, but if you're never a, a friend, friend, you don't get hired. So Prince brought all of these amazing, super diverse uh, people to his parties and created a truly inclusive, you know, party. Jam. Right. And it was amazing. Okay. Um, I brought out also, I, I brought, <laughs> when Prince went natural for the first <laughs> time, um, to me, that's such like a black girl 2010 thing to do. Um, and I think the reaction to it was particularly black as well. Like, I just remember being on Twitter. It's like 2014, 2013, I think, when I first saw Prince's Fro. And I just remember being on Twitter. It must have been some award show. I just remember people on Twitter being like, oh, my gosh, Prince has gone natural. That's such like a black thing to me. Um, and then I would also bring up the 2010 BET Awards and just the outpouring of love that he received from his Black audience. To me, that's really special. Okay, Crystal. Um, okay, so so the Books and Black Lives line during his uh, Grammy's appearance. Albums still matter. Like books and Black Lives, albums still matter. Tonight and always. 
of course. Um, number two, his Ebony interview from 2015. Yes. Uh, yes. He just sounded like an uncle who was, you know, he had a, a light in one hand and, and <laughs> you know. Um, his 1994 AMA speech when he won the award right after lip singing while chewing gum. And everyone sweating the NPG's financial bankroll. Uh, like an Eskimo chill, it's all good. Peace and be wild. I love when he said that. Um, number four, Musicology. I just find that to be a black album. And the after shows associated with that tour. And then also his Arsenio Hall um appearance. I kind of love that interview and I love the performance and there was something particularly black about it for me. You mean the the um, later so yeah, one so or the earlier ones? Oh, the late the 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 um the later ones, not the earlier ones. Okay, Chloe. <laughs> Crystal stole one of mine. The Arsenio Hall one, I was going to say, definitely. Oh, it was, I remember watching and I was like, wow, he's just chilling. It's like he's just like in the living room chilling with his friends, talking about life. And his reactions when Arsenio Hall was talking about that time in back in the 90s when they went to this house party. Now, when you said that, the first thing I flashed back on is, gosh, he, he's such... He's Prince. I know that. I get all that. But he's, he's also like this, this, this normal brother you hang with. I remember a time, and if I have to take this out, you tell me I have to take this out. Uh, but I remember one time we went down the way south of Wilshire to an after-hour spot and hung out and partied. That's something that mm. we'll probably... <laughs> <laughs> I could, you know, I, I mean, I... I have a son now, and 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 uh, congratulations. Put, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And uh, we were there. Were so many things that 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 we did back then. Remember that house? We were sitting in a house, and then vaguely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they take you in and they chain the door, and it's a pit bull, and uh, they give you a drink and a paper cup, and he wouldn't touch nothing. He <laughs> he just sat. Were we in somebody's kitchen or something? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It was crazy. And Prince was sitting in this house. He wouldn't drink nothing. He wouldn't touch nothing. And he was trying not to breathe. He had a cane. <laughs> if, if he could have got oxygen out that cane, we could have stayed longer. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that, but just, just normal good times as, 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 as young brothers experiencing success. Um, we should, uh, we should take commercial and come right back. We'll be right back. But, um, you know, it's kind of hard um, for me to... I, I would say uh, one of my earliest memories of a black moment for print, from, of Prince was um, when he invited Chuck D on stage to freestyle. I can't remember if it was the um, Musicology tour or it was Welcome to America tour, one of the two. Um, and he was freestyling on stage. And correct me if I'm wrong, Kinesis, because you're you know, the expert on this, but I, I'm, a, I'm certain the instrumental that Chuck D was um, freestyling on, on stage with when Prince was like the same instrumental that Prince used live um, during the Love Sexy tour with, um, for I Wish You Heaven. Oh, what I do? I just get down to the groove. Can we do it? Correct me if I'm wrong on that one, but I remember watching him on stage. I'm like, Chuck D and Prince on stage together. And I was like, what? 
the other favorite one for me was um Kendrick Lamar and him for the Yahoo stream. Uh, tell me you love me, know that it's real. I can see more, see how you feel. Look in my eyes, do you realize what is the truth? You're surprised, I despise whatever's right. You're the wrong. This is my life. This is of you. This is of me. This is the truth. This is a we. This is the love. This is God. This is yours. This is ours. Look in my eyes. Tell me you want me. Tell me you see me. I know you want me. Because at the time, Kendrick's second album wasn't out yet, but he was like a rising rap artist and it was just very inspiring to see Prince acknowledge the the current generation or the new generation that's, that's going to basically take over the black scene that was uh, one of my um my one of my favorites also um for those who didn't unfortunately wasn't able to attend celebration this year but Jesse Johnson's stories with him Morris and Prince when they were younger back in the day how they just missed to mess around at rehearsals and just how they were kind of like shed a bit more light on just like black moments in Prince's life. Um, of course, the BT Awards is what got me hooked on Prince. I was just like so much shade, but so much attitude. And I just loved it. Um, for me as well, I would say the hit and run phase two album for me, it was like a hint of what was to come next, what we didn't get a chance to see um, from 2015 or like, uh, from when, from the moment he turned natural, from 2014 onwards, for me, I realized that he was just becoming unapologetically black and just becoming more of himself and just letting his hair down and just basically um, being himself. Um, okay, so I mean, you guys definitely captured most of them. I think my favorite probably still is that Ebony Miles Marshall Lewis interview because I read it and I was like. Oh my gosh, let's date. <laughs> but um, another one for me is there's a it's a hit and run tour show where he spends like 12 minutes lecturing on the importance of black ownership. I ain't trying to preach. I'm just trying to let y'all know something. Thank you. 
movie so and so when I saw the movie it inspired me. These were the days when music was music and radio stations belonged to us. Um, yeah, that is my favorite. And he like he slips into the vernacular. He's just talking, <laughs> and it was funny like seeing that Ebony magazine come out and people respond to it or that article, and they're like, "Prince doesn't talk like that." I'm like, mm, "Yeah, it's called code switching." So I want to talk a little bit about code switching. I'm black. Yeah. So every word that comes out of my mouth is me talking. Yeah, but you so don't, I'm talking black. But you don't, you're not talking black because you don't sound black mm. while you're talking. Well, and, not, that's, and that's my point. What, right, what now, and, that, and I'm offended by that. What do you mean I don't sound black? I'm black, so I sound just as black as you do. I asked myself that question, like, who am I? I've graduated from a top 10 university. I graduated from Northwestern University, and I know how to speak standard English. And there's a part of me that is this kind of professional, this is how I'm going to speak. And then there's another part of me that's like, you know, no, I'm a homegirl and I can speak like this. And, you know, you have to be yourself. You have to be yourself. And I guess sometimes I'm this way and sometimes I'm that way. Do all African-Americans speak African-American English? Nobody knows for sure. My guess is about 90% of African-Americans speak some form of African-American English. I think you can look at middle-class speakers and assume that they don't speak African-American vernacular English because all I'm hearing is standard English. But what happens is that a lot of middle-class speakers do what I like to call code switching, right? So that in certain contexts, they use the vernacular. In other contexts, they will use something that's more um, considered to be more standard, mainstream standard English. I could, you know, speak and talk just like everyone else. I guarantee you that I can carry on a conversation without using not one slang terminology. But the thing is, I'm just more comfortable saying what I want to say and how I want to say it. So it can be a form of expression if that's your, your comfort zone and you want to express yourself through those slang terms. But then for some individuals, it may be a social approval kind of a thing where you don't want to seem like you're an outsider or a square because you're not exactly expressing yourself the way that everybody else did. Where I come from, if they, if they saw me here in school, they call me white. You talk white. So when I leave here, I don't speak how I'm speaking right now because I, I don't want to be deemed as talking white. Right? That's just the reality of it. African Americans have a, are historically really good at code switching. And so I think it becomes less, they lose a bit when you move out of the city and you live in the suburbs because there is nowhere to switch code because everything around you is, is suburbia, which, you know, we tend to as assimilate to white culture or and so you just it's you don't have any people of color you don't have anybody that looks like you that talks like you and you just lose it and it changes language and you come back to the city and your people are just looking at you like you're like you're not of this world because what are you talking about part of what has made it so distinctive in the past has been racial segregation um, and so to the extent that communities become less segregated the nature of the variety probably will will change. But even speakers who are integrated into mainstream circles, many of them make an effort to maintain some ethnic distinctiveness linguistically in spite of that mainstream 
integration. Um, and so I think to some extent there will always be, you know, distinctive ways of speaking by and among African Americans. So yeah, so it's really fun to kind of hear him slip into that because um, it, you hear it when he's like on Sinbad or talking to Tavis Smiley or um, in that Ebony article or on stage or in rehearsals. But he would also, if you're watching like an E! Entertainment News thing, um, you hear a different prince. <laughs> That's a little, it, it's targeted toward a, a wider audience. Um, and I know, Fisayo, you were talking earlier about um, how you, you or there would be the vernacular, like you said, the pigeon English. Can you talk more about that? Oh, I'm not fluent at all in pigeon, but basically in Nigeria, because there are so many um, there are so many languages. Nigeria is a nation of nations um, because the. <sighs> There's so much history to it, but basically when the colonizers came, they just kind of grouped together a bunch of tribes or ethnic groups and called it Nigeria. And so basically you have a bunch of people who are not uh, one who are now in the same country. Um, so in order to English is also the main official language of Nigeria, but because of just the way languages evolve and in order for people of different ethnicities to speak to each other, um, there's just kind of, it's a pigeon in Nigeria is basically um, a melding of some English, some, uh, I would say mostly Yoruba. I'm biased because I'm Yoruba, but mostly Yoruba words, um, but I'm not fluent at all in it. But I think in in uh, in Princess' case, because of the code switching thing, I think that's why so many of like our favorite black moments are when he's among black people, basically. Um, so when I was trying to like find moments, um, I came across the the there are two interviews you can look at basically if you want to see what code switching is. You can look at a 2004 interview he did with. I don't know who, what his name was, but a white individual on a show called The Biz. Sold out concert tour. Are you wowed by the performance of your performance so far? Um, well, we sort of expected it. Um, one nice thing about this record is that it was delivered to every concert goer via AEG and NPG in uh, conjunction. And uh, we knew when the tickets were sold, how many people would actually have the album. That one idea, that simple idea, it sounds simple, but not many people, not anybody has really done this before, to give the CD away to everybody who buys a concert ticket. Uh, a novel approach, but one that has now all of a sudden rewritten the rules a little bit. Has it not? Well, um, the rules were made by people who don't really play music. So uh, I think some of them need to be rewritten. In fact, I believe SoundScan has already This is all regarding his musicology tour. And there, and then there's another video uh, in, of a 2004 interview with um, a black man from Entertainment Today, I want to say, A.J. Caldwell. Can you explain the whole name change thing to me? And it, do you ever plan on changing it again? Or is it well, my name is Prince, so there's no, there's no name change. <laughs> no reason to go into that. <laughs> Tis, tis, you got three more questions. I, I, I just, I, you know, no, it's kidding. a new job. <laughs> what changes in your life does this album reflect? Um, it sounds personal. It sounds like I was slick. I was slick. I like how you did it. You, you swooped it. Yeah, it was nice. It was nice, but it just, like, 
at the end and like clicked over in that personal side. No. Do you, do you, I mean, does your personal life go on? In your music? <clears throat> okay, all right. <laughs> so tell me, what do you do for fun? I don't consider my work work. I consider it fun. My music is my life. You know, it's, it's all a blessing. What's that sign off? Man, this has been great, man. It's been great. <laughs> um, and you can basically just look and see. It's like a clear difference in phrasing, intonation, he tends to be smiling a lot. Like, I think people love to talk about how comfortable Prince was around women, and that's definitely true. But there's also a difference in how comfortable he was around Black people, period, and everyone else. Mm. And then, um, Chloe, do you speak, is it patios, patois, Jamaican? Yes, patois. So, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Um. Well... You know, the good thing is with London, because it's, it's so multi-diverse, um, well, unless you're at work, you your code switch. But, like, when I'm at home, I oh, so bad. But I, I, when I'm at home, I sometimes, or even when I'm out with friends or when I go out, I do get questioned if I am born in Jamaica because at home, my mom is so fluent with it. Sometimes it just comes out, mannerisms, just how we talk, or even, even the way of cooking and how we do things at home is just, like, natural for me um it, it's patois just a well i would say it's not it's a dialect really which english is the main language in in jamaica there are some old like old school tribes in jamaica deep in the country where they're like they speak the old slave tongue but it's not as popular but they're protected from charities anyways um but i don't know i can't even i don't even know the name of it or i don't remember the name of it but um Patois is just, uh, it's English, but it's got a twang to it. So. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, um, my mom's side is from St. Croix, but not close enough for me to under, you know, actually be able to name someone. But I know, like, some words did make it to our family where she'll just drop in a Creole's uh, word every once in a while. I'm just like, hmm. But I think that's really interesting how that happens. Like, when you're talking amongst, like, most of the Muse folks are black except for um, Erica. And I'll say things around them that I won't necessarily say like out among other people because like I, I know that they're understanding what I'm talking about and I don't have to explain it. And I think there's comfort there. Like um, Visayo was saying from a Prince perspective, because I, I know we've referenced the clip already where he talks about when he changed his name and um, he's talking to Sinbad and he was like, I never had to explain why to Sinbad because Sinbad changed his name to or to Arsenio or to really any of the black hosts because we get it. We understand why he did it, whereas everyone else thought he was crazy for it. So I I think there's value in that, especially when talking about, again, why there's certain things about Prince that are clear to us as black people who go through similar experiences, which might be written off as eccentric or strange or crazy if you don't understand the context of uh, his actions. Um, Okay. So to start to wrap this up, um, because we talked about a lot today. It got emotional. (laughs) We hope that we've given you kind of a different perspective of what it is like to um, be black in a space um, that you may not have a lot of people who look like you around or in America or in Europe or as a, a an African in American 
or a black person in America. But um, one thing I I do want to talk about or acknowledge for you, how do you wish people would acknowledge not just Prince's blackness, but those who are culturally different than them, whether it's race, religion, sexuality, or gender? And and I'm going to combine this um, in addition to how you wish people to um, acknowledge this. Why is it important for them to do this from your perspective as a black woman? And we'll start with Fasayo. Um, I think it's it comes from just the basic uh, awareness and respect for the fact that we are not the same. And I don't think that we need to be afraid of those differences. And it's more about how we respond to those differences. So I think uh, I would really like to see from the Prince community, from the community period, I would love to see... Um, I would love to see people make space for um, discussions around Prince that are able to center his uh, blackness, his gender, religion um, as well, um, without a spirit of like defensiveness. Um, I think it's important. It's also part of the larger picture of how we should be relating to people's differences in general. There's nothing to be afraid of. Acknowledging people's differences does not separate us. Um, I think that real acceptance comes from accepting someone for the whole of who they are. And I just think that's just a really important spiritual work, period. Um, And I'm sorry, the second part of the question is... uh, the way that Prince related to his craft has also has always resonated with me the most as a black woman. Um, and I've said it before, but his work ethic mirrored the work ethic that I see in my family and I see in, that I see in so many black people. And I've always tried to have for myself as well. Um, and I've mentioned before that I went to a PWI, predominantly white institution. And so there were a lot of insecurities that I had around my weight, uh, race and how prepared I might be or might not be because of that. And so Prince, among others, were a reminder to me in my studies that, you know, excellence is in my blood. And it's a part of my history. And that helped to push me forward. I still have a lot of work to do in that area. I'm still, you know, thinking about what labor means and how I should be relating to it. Um, but that's always been like one of the most important things to me about Prince, apart from his music. Um, yeah. Okay. Crystal? Yeah. Yeah, so I don't have anything much different to say from what Fasayo said. I'll just say, um, just be willing to listen and be willing to learn. I think that's a way somebody can acknowledge um, Prince's blackness. And it can also, you know, you can, that goes into, you know, any cultural differences, whether sex, religion, um, race. Uh, because, you know, especially being be able to listen to people who know better, <laughs> um, like black people who would know and can relate to Prince's experiences better. Um, and again, piggybacking piggybacking on what uh, Fasayo said, just creating a space for that to happen um, because um, expressing the differences 
in Prince's culture to his fans is again not a um, we're not saying you you can't be a fan of Prince it's just that you know be mindful that he didn't do things just to be doing things you know he had intent and he had a purpose and his race and his culture had a um, had a factor in how he did all of that um, and then as far as uh, um, how he resonates with me as a black woman is just my history with Prince and how I learned about him was through my mother and it was uh, all the experiences that I think of with my mother and Prince was just pure blackness of her um, jamming to Prince and um, the way she talked about him and how he appealed to her it's pretty much the same for me because I am my mother. I'm we're very much the same person, <laughs> so that's kind of how he appeals to me. Um, so yeah, I don't. I didn't have much to add. Just kind of be willing to learn, be willing to listen. It's not an attack. It's just the truth. Um, when people try to explain his race, it, it, it's important in who he was as a person. That's why we talk about it. When you when people ask why does it matter, it matters because of the history of black people, especially in this country. Um, it matters, his race matters, his culture matters because it it fueled so much of what he did and how he moved and the decisions that he makes and the impact that he had on so many people. So, yep. Okay, Chloe. Um, I'm not going to say anything different from what Fasayo and Crystal has said. Um, I'm just going to say it's just helping to create. It's, it's important to help create a space to have a better understanding. Like we all know the richness of racial and ethnic diversity brings towards, you know, the world. And we cannot like understate it, what, what benefits it brings to us. So we must be able to engage and how to basically create your own contributions to help understand and apply these things into our behaviors and, and actually add values to encourage people to acquire to actually add more aspects and how they view things around their day-to-day -day lives. Instead of being closed-minded, like Crystal said, this is not like this is not an attack. This is just us uh, simply just saying, look, look at it this way and look at it from our point of view and try to understand from where we're where we're coming from and then let's work from there and um to to close off um with the answer regarding how print how i resonate with prince as a black woman it was it is quite um it's very uplifting it's quite inspiring um to the fact that um certain things that he talks about in his songs and how he moved is kind of like I definitely relate to it not only because I'm at, like certain things how he talks about women in general it's so uplifting for a man in music to talk about women the way how he talks about women and how he uplifts us but it's also for a black man to talk about women issues and things that we deal with day-to-day -day life but also certain things of black people and a whole that we deal with obviously where I live I don't have I my history with people where I live and where my family has, doesn't deal with the same history how Amer African Americans deal with things, but it was also enlightened my mind to understand like how basically borderline lucky I am. It could have been me, but it could be any one of us. But you know we don't we're not dealing with it right. Well, we, you guys are dealing with it right now, but you know it's not so severe, and um, it's just basically uplifting. Okay, so 
again, we talked about a lot today. And again, purpose, even though the title of it is a bit provocative with Dear White People, the intention wasn't necessarily, um, it's not an attack. It's a perspective. It's a shift of perspective to see through the lens of uh, a black person or black woman of how we view prints and how we view the fandom and different things like that. And I know the purpose of Muse, I've always said it was to give a different perspective or to talk about topics that are difficult in the Prince fandom or around Prince or just ones that haven't been explored as much. And again, there's a quote on Prince's website where he talks about diverse unity and unique diversity and how important that is to kind of recognize because we all see things as we, how we see them. As Prince said, you only know what you know. You only see what your heart will show. And we really wanted to kind of talk about this from a very personal place. Um, I know it got kind of difficult for me through this conversation. Like I said, it's, it's hard for me to talk about race because you have to recognize how much it you encounter different biases and racism. Again, you've heard on this podcast today about how people deal with this every day of their lives. And some people can just ignore it, but a lot of us can't. And sometimes when we try to ignore it, um, it results in maybe death sometimes. So it's really tough. And as far as, you know, what can you do about it? And, and it's not, you know necessarily that you have to go to the next um, <laughs> march somewhere in March or um, do a huge grand um, public declaration of how much you like black people or, or get more black friends or buy black people gifts that you know or anything like that. Oh, those are nice. Um, it's, it's just thinking about how you react to people who are different than you. And this is not just about race. Like I said, it's also religion, sexuality, gender. The person who lives their life differently is not a threat to you if you're if you're clear in who you are. And a lot of the work around any kind of bias or prejudice results, um, it, it's born in ignorance and fear. So when you're thinking about the things that make you upset, or when you're thinking about things that you're triggered by, all those small things can kind of build to turn into a bias against someone who um, lives in a way that um, activates your insecurities. So I would just encourage everyone to think about what you're insecure about and then deal with that. Because once you do, all the other sort of prejudices and bias and um, 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 ownership of other things and different things like that will tend to fall, fall away because they won't matter as much anymore. You can see someone that's different from you and respect that and celebrate that because that's them and you're you. And the different perspectives, like we said, bring color to life and it's not a means to separate or keep everyone separate. Um, as far as how he resonates with me as a black woman, and I always ask this pretty much almost every episode that has a panel, but today it's a little bit different because um, for me it's important Like I said earlier, it's – I would say it's it's bad to kind of project onto someone else, which obviously, <laughs> in a way, while these things are valid, these are also projections on prints. Um, 
And I said earlier that when people love Prince in a small way, it it gives me hope that people can see someone who's different from them or maybe ignore their difference, but see someone who's different from them and love them and love their work and love their contribution and have so much respect for them because it's something that we don't often get to see, especially for black people in America, when every other headline is someone being harassed or killed or shot for no reason. Or I think the latest thing I saw is that a policeman um, tried to arrest a man from play, for playing in the front yard with a dog because they thought, he had a warrant against him and they had the wrong guy. It was just like the smallest things that we encounter every day. So when you're in a concert and Prince says, look at all of us here together, different races, and we're here because we like music and we have a love of the music. It's like, why can't that exist outside of a Prince concert? And I want people to think about that because... When we talk about colorblindness or Prince's kind of comments about that, after all of what you heard today, it's not about not seeing it. It's about being able to be unified and love because we all love each other. Love for one another is more than a tagline. It's a way of life. It's a way to... It's it's a it's a goal. <laughs> but in order to get there, we have to recognize what keeps us from that. And so I hope today's discussion kind of helped to bring some stuff up for you. I hope people did get upset by this because that means that something needs to be worked on. And once you address it, <laughs> you can be healed. So um, today I'm not going to I'm not going to do the where can we find you thing. <laughs> Because I think everybody doesn't want to be added on some of the stuff that we talked about today. <laughs> but don't have me. I don't care. I really don't well, care. We'll if go... you want to find me love. I'm getting blocked left, right, and center. <laughs> Apparently, by people we don't even follow. But um, yeah. we have the Prince podcast Facebook page. Um, I can't say that I'm going to respond to everyone because sometimes it's a lot <laughs> to be have have certain topics like this thrown in my face. But um, if you come to me in the spirit of really wanting to know. I'm happy to engage you. We'll also leave some links on this profile on the show notes page of the um, the uh, implicit bias quiz, so you can see where you fall on that. Also, leave some resources of what to do to help to address that within yourself. And um, I hope this was an enlightening episode for all. We'll see you next time. Bye.